Hello and welcome to the PCOS Nutritionist Podcast. My name is Claire. If you haven't met me yet, then I'm a registered nutritionist. I also have a background in exercise science and natural fertility education. Uh, and I specialize in PCOS because I have it too. So I know how frustrating the symptoms can be. Um, but I also know how much better they can get when we get to the root cause of what's going on in our body. And so if you haven't listened to the very first episode of this podcast before, go back and listen to that. This is really sets up the fundamentals of um, my philosophy around PCOS very well. So it is um, understanding from the researchers that PCOS is a condition of our genetics not working well with our environment. By environment, I mean we're sleeping too little or we're exercising too little or too much or we're just not eating the right food for our body and that disrupts some of the systems in our body like our stress hormones and or our blood sugar and insulin or our thyroid and those then can mean that we get this uh, hormonal disruption and that's really what PCOS is. So if we, instead of just trying to fix the symptom like okay you're not getting a period here take this pill and you'll get a period we actually go right you're not getting a period why are you not getting a period okay you're not getting a period because your testosterone is high. Why is your testosterone high? Well, you have PCOS, but what's actually driving that? Oh, okay, it's that your insulin is too high. And that's really what I mean about the root cause. Not that you caused your PCOS, just that there's a underlying system in your body that's not working well, that's contributing to that hormone imbalance for you. So that's really, this is, this is what I do, whether it be working with a patient one-on-one or whether it be working with um, them in my PCOS protocol program, that's Everything I do is all about trying to get to that root cause or causes. So what is it that's driving this hormonal imbalance in this particular woman? Because it's different for all of us with PCOS, right? And this is why you can't just have, say, a lot of people say to me, what's the best diet for PCOS? And I'm like, that doesn't exist. There is no best diet for PCOS because we are all different. So in this podcast today, we're going to do a QA and a one. So this is something I was doing during lockdown was every week I'd do a little 10-minute Q&A where you submitted questions via Instagram stories and I answered them. And so we decided actually it was far better if we did a full-length Q&A podcast and got into some like more of the deep questions that you were asking. And so last week we put a box up um, on our Instagram stories and I've got a heap of your questions, which is fantastic. So can't wait to go through all of those for you and see if we can, um, yeah, if we can help with some of those questions. So first question from Missy, do a lot of women who have PCOS have HS, which is hydrodentis suppurativa? This is a skin condition where you get things that look like pimples or boils um, on the skin. And it's particular in the, particularly in the areas where your sweat glands are. So really common under the armpits, also in the groin, in the buttocks as well. These can be super painful. They can cause pussy-filled sort of pimples, as I said before, that can um, pop, often can release quite a bad smell when they popped as well, the pus can, and they can they become, can become really chronic. So they can form what they call channels under the skin, which is basically like kind of roots. You think about it like that, like they it grows out these roots and then pops up in a different hair follicle you know another and especially if it's left untreated for a long period of time um, that tends to be in in some cases they may need surgery to remove these channels because otherwise they keep popping up everywhere and um, as I said can be so so painful for the individual who's suffering from that. Um, it's, It's a chronic 
immune inflammatory issue that like many chronic immune inflammatory issues kind of like endometriosis they don't know nearly enough about hydrogen to suprativa I'm just going to call it HS from now is that okay just so I don't have to be saying that long word again so they don't know nearly enough about HS is what they would like to or what they need to to really get effective treatment for individuals um, but what the researchers have found is there is a as I said is a significant inflammation process going on there and um, also that your skin microbiome is very much in um involved in this whole process so your microbiome is your all of the bacteria and organisms living on your skin um, and they do know that there's been some quite significant changes in that microbiome in patients with HS. They also know that um, our insulin plays a big role so those with insulin resistance are more likely to get HS and also those with high androgens or testosterone are more likely to get um, HS as well and those with high testosterone are those us with most of us with PCOS so um, the researchers have found there's a really significant relationship between HS and PCOS so women with PCOS or people with PCOS are about four times more likely to get HS than those that don't have PCOS um, and when they have looked at different treatment options so m- most of the time they would treat HS Traditionally, they would use antibiotics to treat that, to try and kind of kill that immune function there, um, treat treat the immune system, uh, like you would with kind of other bacterial infections. But also they've tried different things, like maybe treating insulin resistance, and does that improve HS? And what they found was that they found that in many cases, treatment with metformin, which is a drug that improves your body's sensitivity to insulin, that that in itself was better than treating antibiotic. So in one study, they actually gave all of the patients, I think it was like about over 100 of them, they gave them metformin. And they, um, regardless of whether they were actually insulin resistant or not, so about 75% were insulin resistant, but they just gave it to all of them. And they found that in 68% of them, they saw a dramatic improvement in their symptoms. Um, And actually, interestingly, there was... um, the presence of insulin resistance didn't necessarily predict whether the metformin was going to have an impact. So that was quite interesting. Um, The other one that they've tried is they've tried um, reducing the testosterone levels as well. So one study they did in PCOS, they took 64 women with PCOS and they either gave them an antibiotic or they gave them an anti-androgen drug. Generally, I think it was spironolactone or spiro that they used in the study. And then they followed them and see what happened. And what they found was that the... Those that took the anti-androgen, the spiro, 55% of them had a, um, an improvement in hydrogen to suprativa, whereas only 26% of those with the antibiotic had any improvement. So it just showed that actually, I think what this comes down to is that maybe improving, they might need to attack it with from multiple sides. So maybe, for example, if you had PCOS and insulin resistance then maybe a combination of treating the bringing trying to bring the testosterone down bringing the insulin down and also improving your immune system and your skin microbiome might need that kind of combination therapy rather than just one thing so for example if only 55 while still the um, anti-androgen was more effective than the antibiotic it still only improved that in 55 percent of cases so maybe it's that they needed you know also to improve their insulin and while a lot of these studies looked at using using drugs in this instance, because actually that's the simplest way to measure these studies is by um, just giving people a drug, because it's very hard to just change one thing about diet. 
um, and therefore, you know, it can't be called a randomized control trial. And there's all that um, stuff that goes on with de when designing studies that makes it just easier to give people a drug. But you can achieve the same thing by addressing diet and lifestyle or potentially by, a, you know, using a combination. So maybe if it was that you had insulin resistance and PCOS, you might use metformin, but also improve your diet and lifestyle. And when I say improve, I don't mean, I, I know that most of you are already eating really well, but it's not necessarily really specific changes for insulin resistance. So I, I don't expect you out there eating, you know, crates of Dunkin' Donuts a day or, you know, getting uh, McDonald's on your way to work in the morning. I know that most of you are eating really well, but I also know that having someone who really understands the specifics of insulin can be super helpful in just tweaking that diet to improve those symptoms for you. So it might be, as I said, it might be taking metformin as well as tweaking your diet, um, as well as you know focusing on other things that are really important for insulin, like getting enough sleep, like having the micronutrients that you, your body needs for your insulin to function well. And this is all the things that I do with my patients or with women in the PCOS protocol is actually it's not just about, you know, diet or cutting carbs or cutting sugar or things like that. It's about, okay, what are the five most important things you can do to, say, improve your insulin if you do have insulin resistance, which is then going to improve your testosterone levels. And that's where I think that having a multidisciplinary approach uh, to something, a chronic condition like PCOS and hydrogenous dentis can be so effective for many women. So if that's you, and if you don't know if you have HS, I mean, have a look at some of the images that I'm going to um, provide for you. But, you know, if you're getting sort of painful pimples and bumps, especially in that armpit, groin area, anywhere that you sweat, just maybe go and get that checked out because... You really want to get on top of that as soon as possible. Um, as I said, it can, you know, form channels, get into the sinus area, and, and they think, I think maybe that that's how it moves um, from sort of area to area. So the quicker you can kind of get on top of it, the better. I think is the advice that that many dermatologists and doctors and um, people would give you as well. So just if you are seeing or getting those in those areas, then you know, do try and get on top of that as soon as possible. Next question was from D, and this was about what to expect when you're coming off the pill um, when you want to get pregnant. I think the question there, or the answer, sorry, D, is that two things. One, the advice I'd always give is probably come off as early as possible before you want to try and conceive, just because if you have been on the pill for a long time, you don't know what your cycles are doing, you don't know when you're ovulating, you haven't learnt how to track when you are actually ovulating, because you can't do that while you're on hormonal birth control, so that's a really huge part of actually conceiving, is knowing when to time intercourse in your cycle, and if you don't know, you're only, you know, only fertile for about six days of your cycle and if you don't know how to detect those days then it can be really hard to actually time intercourse correctly unless you're just the doc you know following your doctor's advice which is just to have sex every you know two days which can be very tiring if you have you know trying to conceive for over six months a year two years I'm sure if you asked anyone that has had fertility troubles um, they would say that that is a unrealistic expectation to put on couples so instead we actually can use your body signs and symptoms like your temperature and your cervical fluid to tell us when you're actually um, in your fertile phase and use that then to time intercourse correctly rather than just what I call the scattergun approach which is trying every two days and hoping that it works. Um, so while you're on hormonal birth control you're not actually ovulating 
And so you can't do this while you're on the pill and so you won't have seen a lot of these symptoms previously and, and or have learned how to do this. So I think coming off the pill with enough time to learn how to do these things while you're also trying to conceive so it's not such a rush when you're like, okay, we, we, we want to get pregnant, we want to get pregnant next month and you know, you don't give yourself enough time to learn all these things that you need to learn. Secondly is that that is a really unrealistic expectation. So I, the expectation I give people is that research shows that it can take six cycles after coming off hormonal birth control for your cycles to normalize. And so this is six cycles. A cycle often isn't, especially in PCOS, it often isn't 30 days. So this could be, you know, a year to 18 months before your cycles regulate after coming off PCOS, after coming off hormonal birth control. So give yourself time if you can, right? I do know that there is a lot of people out there that don't have that luxury. Maybe they've met partners later in life or there's other reasons why they don't have that luxury of, you know, being like, okay, I'm going to come off the pill now and I'm happy to get pregnant in two years' time. Um, But if you can, that would be my advice to you is to give yourself a couple of years to, um, you know, before you feel like it starts getting a bit urgent. And, um, but in terms of other things like symptoms, I guess I'd expect for a lot of, women uh, coming off the pill is that you might get a um, a sudden rise of other symptoms. So because the pill has been suppressing your testosterone androgen levels, when you come off that, you don't have the pill. So pill kind of acts like a sponge to go around and mop up all the testosterone in your body. And so as soon as you stop taking the pill, you take away those sponges and suddenly testosterone is floating around and free to get into your hair follicles and cause you know facial body hair growth, get into your skin follicles and cause them to overproduce oil, which then leads to acne, um, causes hair to you know fall out, kills hair in your head and causes that to fall out. And so you may see a lot of those symptoms coming off the pill as well. So as well as your cycles not necessarily returning for many months, you also might see that you're, um, you know, you get acne or you're getting hair growth or you're getting hair loss as well. So just be prepared for that. The advice I give to all my women on the protocol is if you do want to come off the pill, I say to them, if you can, if you do have the luxury and the time of sort of trying to identify and treat that root cause first, then I would do that so that by the time you come off the pill in six months' time, say for example you've found out that your insulin is high and you're maybe you're pre-diabetic and you, that is causing your testosterone to be high. And if we can bring your insulin down, that can also bring your testosterone down, meaning that when you come off the pill, it's not going to be such a big deal that you've removed all the sponges because the testosterone is just lower anyway. And so you don't get that massive um, backlash of other testosterone-driven symptoms like the acne and and hair growth and symptoms like that. So my advice would be, if you do have the luxury of time, give yourself that extra six months of treating the root cause first because that's also going to potentially help when you do come off and getting your body back ovulating um, quicker than if you have not had that time and you know really treated that root cause so I hope that that kind of answers your question D. Oh the next question is a juicy one so Claire your question was how to approach dating and telling a new partner about PCOS and potentially fertility issues so I'm not trying to include relationship coach into my realm of expertise here Claire but from a PCOS perspective um 
I really don't feel like you need to feel like you need to disclose anything to them about potentially fertility issues because so many women with PCOS don't have any fertility issues, okay? Um, really, there is no, having PCOS does not mean that you're infertile by any stretch of the imagination. So infertility is really um, when you, say for example, are missing sexual organs. There is no possible way that you can get pregnant. PCOS is a condition for some women of subfertility, so it might mean that they are not ovulating at that time or that instead of ovulating every 28 days, they ovulate every 40 days, um, but it doesn't mean that you will never be able to get pregnant or that, you know, as I said, a lot of women don't have any trouble getting pregnant with PCOS, and so I kind of wouldn't even really go there until you're actually trying, why bother about something that may not even happen? Um, if there's something like you know, it's a conversation about, hey, you know, we're, you know, in this relationship and I'm getting older, I'm in my mid-30s and I know that, you know, just being over 35, I know that, that decreases my fertility, or, or sorry, I shouldn't say decreases my fertility, it lengthens the time taken to get pregnant really is what, is how it works. And also that I, you know, I know, I don't know whether I'm ovulating, I don't know whether I can conceive, like many women that have been on, you know, hormonal birth control also don't know that either. Um, and so, hey, you know, maybe we want to start trying sooner, you know, rather than later. And instead of expecting that you're going to get pregnant in, you know, the first month, expecting that it might take six months or 12 months. But in terms of needing to disclose anything like that, or, you know, having even having that conversation in a very, very early stage relationship, I would say, why go there, right? Why go there when potentially isn't even an issue? Instead, I'd be more talking to them about how they can support you um, with your symptoms or the way that you need to eat or live your life, especially if they they don't understand why you know you might not eat certain foods or why you might need to um, you know have a slightly different diet to them. And if they you know, and so that's why explaining to them about PCOS and and the, you know maybe for you it's that you have insulin issues as well, and therefore your body can't tolerate as much carbohydrate as what they can and therefore why you know having pasta every night might not be the best thing for you for example that would be when I would have the conversation with them not about the potential fertility issues that you don't even know are going to happen it's like for them they might have a sperm issue but because they've never been tested they've got no idea and so you don't know that they don't know that it's not I really think that it is a especially when people hear the name polycystic ovarian syndrome and it sounds scary it sounds like you've got these, you know, tumours on your ovaries that are affecting things. And But when someone actually takes the time and really understands it and really understands that, for example, it, is, it isn't infertility, it's subfertility, the only reason being that you may not be ovulating um, as regularly or, or often, but that can all be improved significantly. And, and, and also there is incredible fertility drugs out there like letrozole that can really help with, you know, solving those issues very effectively and quite easily so yeah my take anyway would be just really focus on that root cause and trying to identify that and you know if you're not ovulating get yourself back ovulating or understand a bit about what those fertility challenges might be caused by if you think that you might have them but also that you may not as well and so don't just assume that things are going to be an issue and therefore you have to have these big conversations very early on in a relationship for something that may never transpire Second question, sorry, third question. As a sports person, how did you modify your training? Um, and then how did you maintain your diet, especially when you travel a lot for tournaments? Really good question. I actually, when I was competing, 
internationally, I didn't know that I had PCOS. So I didn't find this out until after I'd sort of retired from very competitive training. I was still doing, so I wasn't doing triathlon or anymore. I was doing some multi-sport stuff and I was doing um, long distance running. So I was doing 100k ultra marathons and things like that. Um, but so I didn't actually really modify my training that much. And when I, it wasn't until I really got into the detail and understanding how my, how exercising more, you know, if, especially for me in the earliest ages, like weight gain was a, a really big symptom or continual weight gain, even though I was running for, you know, a long period of time a day. Um, and, but when I realized what that was doing to me, then I could modify my training pretty easily um, once I really actually understood what that was. But it wasn't like I was trying to also be an international athlete and modify my training. So I can't necessarily comment about me, but for for the women I've worked with in the protocol who have come through um, that with me and they've been athletes, for those that are competing, it really depends on what their ambitions are. So say, for example, if, if they're an endurance athlete and we also find that they're insulin resistant or their insulin is not functioning properly then I think that it can be very hard to perform at your best while also a fundamental system in your body isn't functioning optimally so my advice to them would always be to use a period of time so say for example it's six months in the off season to really focus on trying to improve that insulin sensitivity as opposed to just battling on with a training that they would normally do. So say, for example, if they're a you know, long-endurance cyclist or runner, then I'd kind of be getting them in their off-season to look at maybe doing instead some strength training and modifying their diet and focusing on sleep and supplementation. Give that a good whack for six months and see if we can improve their insulin a little bit, which can then seriously improve their abil- muscles' abilities to use glucose and... Um, and also improve those stress hormones as well for those that are really struggling with really high stress hormones and that again is going to be affecting your performance. So while it can be a bit of definitely some short-term pain when it comes to training differently, maybe not doing what you would normally do in an off-season, I think over the long term that's really the only only way to go about it. Otherwise if you're trying to sort of reverse insulin issues and stress hormone issues while you're also trying to compete at your highest, it's very, very hard to achieve. So that would be my thing. Um, And then when it comes to traveling for tournaments and and stuff like that, I think um, this is definitely when the 80-20 rule applies. Things are not always going to be perfect. Um, But focusing on the, like, Knowing what your non-negotiables are, I think, is really important when you're traveling. So maybe there's two or three things that you go, right, these are the things that if all else fails, I'm going to try and achieve. So maybe it's, you know, for me, one of them would be sleep, right? When I'm traveling, that would be one of the biggest things is if I just try and get as much sleep as possible, trying to get into a sleep routine when I get to a new time zone or um, focus on that. Because I know that when my sleep's down, then other systems in my body just don't function properly. And then the next thing would be for me, um, breakfast. I know that if I have the right breakfast for me, then my, you know, I'm not getting hangry all the time. I'm not getting severe sugar cravings. And so I'm really going to focus on that element as well. Whereas for you, it might be that I know that I need to get out and go for a walk, right? You know, that's the thing. Whenever I'm traveling, I know that as soon as I get to the hotel, I need to get out and go for a walk. And that kind of sets me up really well for 
the rest of the day. So I think that's the thing is just knowing one or two things that are your non-negotiables and everything else just you kind of just go with the flow. So maybe if dinner's not perfect or if you know uh, you can only access subway you know when you're driving or something like that then that's okay so long as I've had you know my breakfast and I and, and I prioritize my sleep. So that's how I'd really focus as well for any of you that are leading busy lives or trying to travel is just really focus on one or two things, not worry about 10 things. Next question is about iron levels and PCOS. Um, the question was really about, I've just low iron and PCOS please, just had a second transfusion. Okay, so transfusion is when they'll give you an iron injection if your iron levels are really low. Um, iron, low iron is many women with PCOS can have low iron but equally many women with PCOS can have high iron levels so I wouldn't say necessarily that low iron levels is super prevalent in PCOS um, as you know all, all PCOS causes low iron levels um, but many women with PCOS do have low iron so I was just talking about this on our call today in the protocol one of the women had very low iron um, had also had very low B12 so it is it's definitely there but I wouldn't say that PCOS is causing that but I would say whenever it comes to a deficiency of anything whether that's iron or b12 or vitamin d you really want to look at three things what's in terms of what's causing that one is are they getting enough so are you actually getting enough iron in your diet if you are then what is stopping you absorbing that Sorry, that was actually only two. But those are, you know, those are the sort of things I'm looking for. Go back, going back to the real basics. So, for example, if you're vitamin D deficient, okay, is it because you live in a country where the angles of the sun's rays just aren't at the right angle that your skin can convert vitamin D? Or are you not getting out in the sun enough? Or are you getting out in the sun but only when you've got sunscreen on and your body actually can't, the vitamin D conversion of the skin can't work when you've got sunscreen? So same thing with iron. Are you, is it that you're not eating any red meat? Or, um, or is it that you are eating a lot of red meat, but actually that your your body is not absorbing that? And when you look into the absorption, so the the actual intake bit, that's relatively easily fixed. So, for example, we're looking at increasing re red meat in the diet. Um, there are other non-red meat sources of iron, um, but they generally aren't as well absorbed. So, um, there's two forms of iron. One is called heme, and one is called non-heme. Heme only comes from red meat. Whereas non-heme comes from things like spinach and green vegetables, but it's not as well absorbed as the heme iron. So we can't, so for example, you know, maybe the same, if you had a cup of red meat and a cup of spinach, your body would absorb, say, 100 units of iron from the cup of meat and only, say, 20 units of iron from the um, cup of spinach. Okay, they, those are not real figures, by the way, that is made up, but just explaining that for the amount that you eat, you just don't absorb nearly as much from um, the plant sources what you do from the red meat but that's not helpful if you're vegetarian or plant-based you don't you just don't eat red meat right so it's got to be okay how can we get as much iron from your diet as possible and this is where you know definitely the non-heme sources the, the plant sources are great but also things like cooking in a cast iron pan or you can get these like little cast iron fish things that you put in your um, kettle or whatever, wherever you boil your hot water and then that can leach some iron into your tea so every time you drink a cup of tea you're getting a bit more iron. Um, I actually wouldn't use 
iron and tea in the same thing because the tea, the tannins in tea can stop the absorption of iron. So it would be if you're drinking, I don't know, peppermint tea, something that doesn't have the caffeine or the tannins in it. So um, that would be how I would try and increase, and, and or maybe it's supplement as well, supplementing with iron to help if you're not getting a lot from your diet. But if you are getting a lot from your diet and it's an absorption issue, that's where I'd be looking at, okay, why is your body not absorbing it? Is it genetic? So is there a genetic mutation that means that you cannot actually absorb or convert iron very well from your diet? That is very possible. So that would be one that I'd rule out. Because if you know that it's that, then you're like, okay, this is something I'm just going to have to deal with. I'm probably just going to have to get transfusions or supplement significantly for the rest of my life. Or is it that you have some gut issues and maybe there's a parasitic infection or something like that that is actually stopping your body from being able to absorb that across your gut because just eating the food is not enough either your body then needs to get that food across your stomach um, th- across your small intestines and actually absorb so where we do all of our um, absorption of our nutrients is in our small intestine so there's some issues there maybe bacterial overgrowth or parasitic or there's some inflammation in the gut lining you may not be able to absorb that across as well and therefore you're not getting it even though you are eating high quantities of it or taking a supplement and that's where the transfusions can be really helpful because they're going straight into the muscle so again if you know what the issue is maybe while you're fixing the gut issues if that's possible for you then still knowing that you may need to still get the transfusions to keep your iron levels up while doing that Um, so just on the flip side for anyone that's interested um, is also quite common to have something condition called iron overload in PCOS and this is where um, you actually absorb well a few things you may absorb more iron from your food that's a condition called familial hemochromatosis um, also they think that because for many women with PCOS if you're not getting a period very regularly you're not losing iron that way because that's another way where you lose, lose iron in the female body is through menstruation um, insulin resistance we know um, increases your um, risk of iron overload and then there's also a decrease in a molecule for want of a better word um, called hepcidin which is involved in basically how your body absorbs iron and in PCOS they found that often that can be um, decreased and so you actually increase more iron or increase absorption of iron from the body which is fascinating so I often well I say to all women with PCOS don't just assume that you will have low iron Uh, this is also quite important for those who are taking a prenatal supplement or a multivitamin often that can they can have quite high levels of iron in them Um, so get try and get your iron levels tested what you want to get tested here is something called ferritin that is the um, level of iron stores in your body so ferritin is your iron store in the body and if you have high levels of ferritin you really want to be careful about not supplementing with additional iron in prenatals so I literally have three prenatals that I would recommend to women but only after we get the iron tested and those prenatals are those that either do or do not include iron in them so really would it's a you know a really good course of action to get your iron levels tested once or twice a year Um, even if it's just once a year just see what they are if they are high then really be careful about um, that in your body and because it can really make things like insulin resistance worse if you've got high levels of iron we really want to be making sure that um, we try and get those down so if you've got really you know if you've got really high levels of iron your um, doctor should be picking this up 
but a way of bringing that down would be donating blood okay so it can be relatively easy fixed but your doctor should be able to say to you hey look that's actually quite a high level we might need to you know bring those levels down um, but they also might know might not know to do this in PCOS so you might need to ask them to do that test for you so that's the ferritin test Next question we have is how to wean off metformin. Um, this is a really interesting question. I've never been asked this. Um, but I guess the thing is that obviously you need to talk to your doctor about going off any medication. So talking with them first. And um, But really I think when it comes to if you do want to change your medication, you'd have chatted, chatted to your doctor about this. It's really understanding that you're going to have to do something else to control that insulin. So if you've been prescribed metformin, it's generally because your insulin is too high and the metformin's job is to make your body more sensitive to insulin so that your body is not having to produce as much insulin. And so if you take that away, you really need something else in its place to be making sure that you're not producing as much insulin. So that's either modifying your diet, uh, modifying other things that can cause insulin resistance. So for example, sleep. Um, the researchers have showed that things like getting just five hours of sleep a night reduces your insulin sensitivity by up to 30%. Maybe it's about modifying your exercise. You're making the, your body more sensitive to insulin through exercise. Maybe it's about making sure that you've got all the vitamins and minerals your body needs so that your insulin actually works up optimally. So that's really what I would do. Is It's not about just weaning yourself off gradually. It's about uh, really making sure that you have already implemented all those steps to bring your insulin down um, so that when so that's not just about taking the metformin away cold turkey you've actually done the replacement and so I'd probably work on doing that for sort of three or six months prior to going off the metformin um, and and bringing your doctor along the ride on that and so saying hey look well this is what I'm doing this is how I'm kind of actually addressing my insulin through other ways um, and here's the research behind that which is what I provide all the women, women in the protocol is the research behind why those steps work and how effective they are and, and stuff like that. So you know, okay, what are the things that I'm doing that are as that have been shown in research to be as effective as metformin in bringing insulin down? Um, and that's the way that I would approach it. And the last question wasn't necessarily a question that you guys asked on the question box, but it's in response to the post I posted on the weekend about my philosophy on, you know, it's 80-20 way of living, that it's, we don't really want to be all or nothing, completely restricting all different foods and then, you know, falling off the wagon. Um, and a lot of you responded. So Kristen, Kerry, um, Claire, um, about, yes, like wanting to know more about this and my philosophy on this. So this is really, for anyone that's been through the PCS protocol, so Claire, you would know this. Claire Gaynor, you, um, I know that you responded to that comment. I tell all my women in there that I never expect them to completely remove sort of food groups especially you know unless for example they have been diagnosed with celiac disease for example or um, have another condition which would mean that they really have to allergy which means they really have to avoid those food groups but things like when we're talking about reducing sugar for insulin resistance I don't ever expect them to never eat um, a chocolate bar again or an ice cream again right but if they are having really massive sugar cravings and are really struggling with not eating sugar every day, then we address the sugar cravings first, right? We don't just try and say, you know what, you've got insulin issues, you can't eat sugar. Um, we go, right, you've got insulin issues, this is what's driving those sugar cravings, let's fix that first by modifying your diet so that you're then not getting those sugar cravings and not really um, 
wanting it all the time. But you're still going to not, you might not be really craving that sugar anymore, but you're still going to want to have that at particular times. You're still going to be away um, on holiday and wanting to have a can of Coke or an ice cream. Um, and that's really what I encourage you to do is go, I can have those because the majority of time I'm actually keeping my sugar levels pretty low. And so therefore I can have the, um, you know, the every now and again, the once or twice a month type scenario when I'm out for dinner and I really want that apple crumble on the menu, um, I'm going to have it. Um, personally, this is how I live my life. I, you know, I know that PCOS is going to be a condition that, and insulin is going to be an issue that I need to manage for the rest of my life. Um, but I'm far better eating like this most of the time than trying to ha do a super restrictive diet and then falling off the wagon every two or three weeks and then, you know, getting back on, doing restrictive diet and then falling off the wagon. Okay, and I just think that it is so damaging, not just psychologically to us and because every time we do fall off the wagon, we, you know, berate ourselves and we're like, oh, you can't stick with it. It's your lack of self-control when actually really it's just a fundamentally physiological response in our body that we're going to want that food anyway it's not not about self-control and so we have that horrible time berating ourselves and then we do the super restrictive diet again for a few weeks and the pattern just continues and continues and continues and I don't know about you but I do not want to live my life like that so for me it's about how can I get the outcome I'm looking for which is healthiest I can be you know relative to having a you know a pretty easy life to lead how can I get the outcome of keeping my insulin lowish but then also still leading a pretty easy normal life and not having to be super restrictive so this is where my 80-20 principle comes in and I think that there is no exact right way to go about it so a lot of people ask me say right what is 80-20 does it mean that I have two meals a week that I don't that I eat whatever I want and I find that sort of way of thinking a little bit problematic because it still means that you feel like you have to diet or be completely restrictive in all other times versus and then you have these two kind of blowout meals and then you're back on the restriction um, I just haven't found that to be a particularly successful strategy in most people that I work with I feel like they are if they have the ability to make that choice in the moment, so it's not sort of like a planned, okay, I'm going to have my this meal on this day. It might be that, hey, I'm out for a friend and with a friend, and I really decided that we, I really felt like sharing this cupcake with her, and I'm going to have that. Um, it means that it can be a bit more of an authentic freedom rather than this sort of planned and contrived freedom. But I also understand that different things work for different people. So I really think that it's about understanding for you what works for you. Um, another thing that really works for me is having a couple of non-negotiables. And generally this is not about food. This is about the other lifestyle things that I know make my body work well. So I know for me that sleep is so crucial. I mentioned this before when we were talking about the exercise part and the non-negotiables. Um, I know that if I don't get enough sleep I don't I feel crap and I make poor food choices because my body is driving me to find those refined carbohydrates and sugar that is a physiological response to lack of sleep so I know that that's what I'm going to do and I'm not going to be able to think straight I'm going to be cranky I'm going to be make poor decisions 
around not around food but about other things I know that I'm going to be snappy to people that I love and so for me that is a really crucial thing that I really am not really willing to negotiate on is sleep the other thing for me is breakfast I know that if I get a great breakfast in it sets me up so well for the day and I don't get the hangry attacks don't get the sugar cravings that I would if I did not have that so I think for you it's about really understanding one or two things that are really important for you and the other things it's like yeah well I know that if I don't I don't know if I know that if I forget to take my supplements one day oh well who cares not going to make a great a huge difference in the grand scheme of things whereas if I get you know four hours sleep one night yeah I am going to feel crap the next day so just knowing what those non-negotiables are for you I think is really important in helping you to prioritize the things that are really important and those that are like nah, I can take or leave that so that is the Q&A for this week thanks so much for listening in I hope that that helped and thanks for all of your amazing questions you guys are so so onto it and like I'm in awe of all the questions that I get from you so thanks so much for submitting those and I look forward to speaking to you again next week with another podcast I can't even remember what it is off the top of my head so it'll be a surprise for all of us. So thanks so much and we'll talk to you then. Bye. Now stand by for our disclaimer. The information contained in this podcast has been prepared for the purpose of providing information, including about the PCOS nutritionist products and services, and is designed to support clients' overall wellness. It is not intended to provide medical advice or designed to rectify, treat or cure any specific medical conditions or diseases. Nothing stated or shared in our podcast is intended to be and must not be taken to be medical advice. Please seek the advice of professionals as appropriate regarding the evaluation of any specific information, opinion, advice or content contained in our podcast.